I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. And I've, I've said this before, according to Scripture, uh, the two great threats to our faith all the time uh, can be summed up in the images of the dragon and the prostitute. That's the imagery of the book of Revelation. Uh, the dragon representing persecution, hardship, affliction, suffering. And the prostitute representing seduction, ease, pleasure, all that this world has to offer that draws our hearts away from God. And I think that those two things, obviously in those terms, sound stark and alarming, but they can set in subtly as well. For example, do you ever feel like your prayers just bounce off the ceiling? Like you're just praying to the wall, praying and praying and praying with no noticeable response, no answer from God. Perhaps you experience from time to time, and maybe at times more severely, acutely, fear, despair, worry. I mean, it could be when you just look at the state of your marriage, or it could be when you think about a wayward child, or you look at a dead-end job situation. could be simple things like that. Or perhaps you look at the big scale picture of the state of our nation and you feel worry about the future. Maybe you fear the threat of persecution one day. Maybe you've experienced at times in your life the temptation to compromise. Maybe even just in, in small ways, but to compromise your convictions in order to gain favor with man, to avoid some discomfort. If you can relate to any of those things, then Daniel chapter 6 is for you. You need to hear this word from God because it's the purpose of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to protect the people of God, to guard and keep us from those dangers, the danger of unbelief. And it's God's purpose in Daniel chapter 6 to reveal Himself. That's what God does in all His Word right? So as we go to Daniel 6, we do so with the awareness God means to reveal himself, and he reveals himself in this chapter as the living God who saves and delivers those who trust in him. And he does that so that you, seeing and beholding the glory of the God who saves here in this chapter, so that you will be secured and strengthened to worship him always and to never fear anyone. Or anything. That, that's the outcome. That's the effect that I believe God means to accomplish in your life through this word. To reveal himself to you so that you would worship him always and never fear anything. So let's pray and then we'll go to God's word. Father, we look to you again as we've already done in song and in prayer. And we ask you now for the help of your spirit. The same spirit who inspired these words thousands of years ago, thank you that that same Spirit, Spirit of the living God, dwells in us to give us light and revelation in the knowledge of God through all that you say to us here. And so it is with humility and with joy and anticipation that we turn to your word, resolved to believe all that you say and to practice it in our lives for your glory and our good. Amen. So follow along. I want to pick up at the end of chapter 5, 
because there's some transition that happens leading into chapter 6. Chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, you can follow along in your Bible or the words will be on the screen as well. That very night, if you remember last week's sermon, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So this is important context because what's about to unfold in chapter 6 is happening in the midst of political transition and turmoil. I mean, if you think we live in tumultuous times today, just consider the fact that we have never lived personally in this country through, in our lifetime, any kind of transition of power like this. This is a hostile takeover. In a single night, the mightiest empire in the world, Babylon, fell. I mean, they were so secure behind their thick wall that Darius was throwing a party, getting drunk, while he knew the foreign army was right outside his walls. He didn't think there was any way they could ever get through, and they did, and in a single night, they conquered Babylon. And so there's a new king, there's a new political regime, which means a new political structure, new hierarchy, new constitution, new everything, transition and turmoil. The first thing Darius does is set up his new government. Look at Daniel 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. And a satrap was like a governor or a mayor overseeing a smaller provincial area. So 120 of those to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then This Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So remarkably, Daniel is promoted under this new regime. The last thing that happened, one of the the last kingly acts that Belshazzar Uh, took part in before he died was he told Daniel, you're going to be third highest in my kingdom for interpreting the writing on the wall. And then he's killed by the Babylon. So that doesn't do you a lot of good, right? If that king who promoted you is killed, that promotion's no good. But, But now, under a new king and a new kingdom, Daniel, again, is promoted and exalted. Notice the connection between his distinguished character and his ascent. The author's drawing our attention to this, Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials. An excellent spirit was in him, and that's why he is set over. He's set over others because he's distinguished above them. I mean, the reward for good work is always more work. You do a good job, you get more jobs to do. And that's what happens to Daniel. So far, so good. And here's where the conflict comes into the narrative. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to, found, to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. That's a really abrupt turn of events. Where did that come from? Daniel was distinguished. There's an excellent spirit in him. He's promoted. And so everyone else set their sights on him, and they wanted to take him down. Where does that animosity toward Daniel come from? I, I heard uh, a cold case detective once say, every murder, every crime always boils down to three motives and some combination of those, power, lust, or money. I think power and money are going on here. 
One, we already saw Daniel's exalted above all of these other high officials, and so there is this sinful ambition which causes competitive people to always see the king of the hill as a target, right? They're just, if you're at the top, then you are the target, because I want to be at the top. So I think there's just that basic selfish ambition going on here, and probably some financial greed. Did you catch back in verse 2? The primary reason we're given for this government structure was so that the satraps might give an account to the high officials over them so that the king might suffer no loss. So mainly what's going on here is money has to get to the king and there's got to be a structure to make sure it all gets back there. But if some guy comes in full of integrity and honesty and he doesn't let you cheat like that, if you're used to padding your own lavish lifestyle by embezzling funds from the king, suddenly you have to give an account to someone honest and upright, you might not be very thrilled either. So naturally, Daniel had to go. But there's a problem. Look at the second half of verse 4. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So here the narrative underscores Daniel's innocence. No fault, no error, faithful. And all the officials repeat it. We can't find any ground for complaint against him. So this is how it always goes, right? It's not that they dislike Daniel because of his faults. They went looking for faults because they disliked Daniel. They already disliked him, so now they just have to find a reason to dislike him, a reason to take him down. That's how envy always works. So, I mean, just side note, tuck that away. If you find yourself looking for faults, you become aware you're looking for a fault in somebody, the fault is in you. That's where it lies. So they had to engineer this conspiracy. This this is how dirty, sinful human politics always works. They had to create the illusion that Daniel was the one who was unfaithful to the king. And so what they attempt to do is set up a law that runs perpendicular to the law of Daniel's God so as to guarantee this collision, put Daniel on a collision course with trouble with the king to make him look unfaithful. And just just think about this for a second, though. That means that Daniel had such a reputation for faithfulness that as they're scheming and plotting against him, they're totally expecting Daniel to remain faithful to his God to the death. They're expecting that. That's why they think this plot would work, the strategy would work. So pick up again in verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. That phrase is repeated throughout this narrative just to underscore that this is a conspiracy that they are engaging in together. They come by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and 
injunction. So, so notice what they did here. They, they tried to cast themselves as the ones who are loyal to the king. So they flattered the king. Hey, we have this great idea. Nobody should pray to any god or any man except for you for 30 days. Make it a whole month. So they set themselves up to look like they're the ones faithful to the king. But if you're paying attention, their loyalty is only to themselves. Right? There, there's no loyalty to the king here. It's purely selfish ambition. They are loyal to themselves alone. And meanwhile, they are attempting to frame Daniel as disloyal to the king when the narrative has reminded us again and again, there's no error in him. There's no fault. He's totally blameless. That's blatant irony. Don't miss verse 8. It's crucial because it, it sets up the ironclad nature of this injunction. Sign this document so that it cannot be changed and do it according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. That same point comes up in the story of Esther, that it was a custom among the, the, law, uh, the, the Medes and the Persians that if a king passed a law, even the king himself could not change it. Ironclad. So, what did Daniel do when he heard this injunction? And pause here and just put yourself in his shoes for a minute. What, what would you have done? Not hard to imagine. Some may turn immediately to protesting, complaining, if not directly to the king, then at least to close friends. How unfair, how unjust. Some might just turn to fear, anxiety, wringing their hands. I can imagine, just because of the context of this year, tweets and blog posts from pastors and Christian thinkers who are reassuring everyone, don't, don't worry, we have to obey the king, Romans 13, or else we'll ruin our public witness, but it's okay, prayer is that kind of, kind of thing you can do in private, the king doesn't even have to know that you're praying to God, so it's perfectly fine, just carry on in secret, praying there, and everything will be fine. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel ignores the king's injunction, and he does so immediately and intentionally. When he knew that the document had been signed, he went home to pray. As soon as he hears about it, he goes home. And he prays in an unmistakable way. He gets down on his knees. That, that is a universal sign of prayer and petition and supplication. Everybody in the world knows what you're doing if you're down on your knees, and he does so in front of an open window, and he does so repeatedly, three times a day, morning and noon and evening, he prays and gives thanks. There's no complaint here. He's just thanking God and pouring out his petition to God, and he does all of that without altering a single thing in his personal daily routine. This is what he had done previously. He doesn't go out of his way to do this. This was just his custom, and he kept on doing it in spite of the injunction. So think about that. 
Daniel's probably about 70 years old right now. He was carried into exile when he was in his teens. So 50-some years, he has been praying toward Jerusalem. Why? Because when the temple in Jerusalem was dedicated in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon prayed to God and said, Oh God, if your people generations from now are unfaithful to you and you keep your covenant warnings to them and carry them into exile, if while they are in that foreign country in exile, they pray toward this temple where you have set your name and your presence, then God, hear them. Hear them and bring them back to this land that you gave to them. That's why Daniel's praying toward Jerusalem. There's nothing magical about the direction you face when you pray, but it was a manifestation of his faith in God. And he's been praying for 50 years for that return from exile, and he never sees it or experiences it himself personally. So if you've ever thought your prayers went unanswered, just haven't, just keep waiting, keep praying, keep pouring your heart out to God. Just because you can't see the response yet doesn't mean God isn't listening. So Daniel's pouring out his heart to God in prayer and thanksgiving, just as he has always done. And of course, he could have closed the window. So commentators debate here. Is this a wise thing Daniel does, or is it a foolish, rash thing? I mean, you could pray in secret. He could have gone into the inner room in his house. He, he could have closed the windows. Listen to John Calvin on this point. Daniel, therefore, was obliged to persevere in the holy practice to which he was accustomed, unless he wished to be the very foulest apostate. He was in the habit of praying with his windows open. Hence, he continued in his usual course, lest anyone should object that he gratified his earthly king for a moment by omitting the worship of God. I wish this doctrine was now engraved on the hearts of all people as it ought to be. But this example of the prophet is derided by many. The prophet seems to them too inconsiderate and simple since he incurs great danger rashly and without necessity. For they so separate faith from its outward confession as to suppose it can remain entire even if completely buried and for the sake of avoiding the cross. They depart a hundred times from its pure and sincere profession we must maintain, therefore, not only the duty of offering to God the sacrifice of prayer in our hearts, but that our open profession is also required, and thus the reality of our worship of God may clearly appear. Can you pray just in your heart? Absolutely. But if you've been told not to pray to anyone else, then, Calvin's arguing, then it's compromise to move your prayer just to your own heart and your own thoughts. Calvin's words, I wish this truth was ingrained on all of our hearts. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God, just as they expected to find him, right? Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And these are seasoned political strategists and manipulators. They don't barge in with an accusation against the king's favorite man. 
They come in and first get his agreement. Isn't it right, O king, that you signed this injunction? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Verse 13, now having his agreement, he's on their side. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So again, the narrator wants us to feel here the tension between Daniel's innocence and and the absolute impossibility of deliverance. In in every age, every culture, every time, every institution, there are movers and shakers. You know those people just, you know, people of influence and power and standing and capital, people who just get things done. They just say it and it's done. They know people, they know who to ask, they have the resources, they make things happen. But if the mightiest man on earth can't rescue you and save you, then you're in trouble. And Darius couldn't rescue Daniel. Those two words used in verse 14, he set his mind to deliver Daniel, to rescue Daniel. Those are words of salvation. And Darius, the king, can't do it, can't get him out. Verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. This is the third time we are reminded in this story that a law of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed, not even by the king. Verse 16, Then the king commanded. He's exhausted all his options. He's consulted all of his legal advice. And there are no loopholes. There's no way around it. So the king reluctantly commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So, At this point in the story, the suspense intensifies like one of those crazy uh, escape artist performances. Have you ever seen one of those? Those those crazy guys who are like, here, handcuff me and put me in a straitjacket in water in a locked container and lift it 50 feet in the air and put the rope on fire. And if I don't get out in two minutes, I drown and fall to my death and burn up alive. I mean, it's just the intensity is all built up. Have you, any of you seen one of those performances in real life? It is nerve-wracking. I saw one at the circus here in Sioux Falls once. My hands were sweating just watching that guy dangling up there. It's not enjoyable. That's how the, the tension builds here when the, the stone is rolled in front of the mouth and it's sealed, not just by the king's seal, but by the signets of his lords, which means the king can't come back and change it. He can't sneak back there because it's one of those things you have to have like multiple people sign off to get the door open again. So there's, there's just no possible way out. It's like when you're watching one of those shows, a movie, you're thinking, how in the world are they going to get them out of this? I can't imagine the resolution that the author has in mind here. There's no conceivable human way out that nothing might be changed concerning 
Daniel. That is as definitive a death sentence as you could possibly receive. Verse 18, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. It's surprising that the the narrative doesn't keep the point of view with Daniel and what happens there through the night. Our perspective follows the king back to the palace where he can't sleep. And if you have ever been so anxious, so worried that you toss and turn all night, you know what a miserable night that is. Just drags on forever and ever. And in the morning when he comes back, his voice, you can hear it in his voice, the anguish, the anxiety. We're supposed to feel this agony that the king feels knowing he sentenced an innocent man to death. Verse 20, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel... I mean, right there, we know the resolution. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. And in that sentence, we have a summary of the entire narrative, the main point of the whole thing. Daniel is taken up out of a den of lions and no harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. Why did Daniel survive the lion's den? Because he trusted his God. And in verse 22, Daniel's own words, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Those two things are parallel. They, they go together. Daniel's blamelessness and his trust in God. To trust God is to be counted right with God. It's not like justification by faith happened only with Abraham and then never again until Jesus came. Everyone who's ever trusted in God with the same faith as Abraham is counted right with God through that faith and that faith alone. So Daniel enjoys the very blessing of Abraham, which Paul sums up in Romans 4, 3, 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. To be counted righteous, blameless, having all your sins forgiven. Daniel's not here claiming, I have never sinned. I am a sinless person. He's saying, I trust God. And he has made me right with himself. He has justified me. And because I trust him and obey him and not any man, he keeps his word. He keeps his promises. Everything, every good promise he's made to his people. God kept his word to me. Daniel trusted in his God. Verse 24, and the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So one thing that puts out of our minds any suspicion that maybe the lions were just lethargic, not hungry, tame, 
before they reached the bottom. But there's another point in this verse. The, the dramatic reversal of expected outcomes. Remember how it just builds and there's absolutely no human way out. And then, at the last second, a total reversal of outcomes. That is a revelation to us of the justice of God. One of the main themes in the book of Daniel is that God does, in fact, govern this world. And he does so as a righteous judge of this world who does actually thwart the proud, the arrogant, the evil, tyrants and oppressors. God calls people to account in history. He does. Psalm 7, verses 15 through 16. The wicked man makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. That is a principle of justice by which God governs history. And sometimes it looks like the evil are prospering greatly and going on undisturbed for a lot longer than we would like. But don't ever doubt that God calls all to account. I, th I think, sadly, many Christians have a misinformed philosophy of history, believing history just goes from bad to worse, and the story of the church is one of slow decline and inevitable defeat. But that is not the view of history that anyone steeped in Scripture should hold, listen again to the psalm, Psalm 37, 9 through 11. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Unless you think, well, that's just Old Testament. Didn't Jesus say, the meek shall inherit the earth? In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So don't misunderstand. There are evildoers. They do evil. They oppose God. They oppose God's people. They do inflict harm. There is conflict in this fallen world. And God sets limits. And if you pay any attention to these narratives in Scripture, He loves cliffhangers. He just loves cliffhangers right up to the end, even past the point of no return. And then he steps in and delivers and judges. History is not the story of the inevitable triumph of evil. Human history is the story of how God rescues and redeems this fallen world through his Son. Look at verse 25, the resolution of the story. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. Think back to the first decree. Nobody can pray to any God or any man except me. Now, we're probably still within that 30-day limit, which means that decree, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, has not changed so Daniel survived the lion's den, but that decree still stands. Here, Darius has figured out, what do you do about it? You just issue a new decree that supersedes that one. And here it is. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? For he is the living God. 
enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God rescues Daniel and a proclamation goes out to all peoples and languages and nations. Worship the God of Daniel. There's a 19th century hymn called Dare to Be a Daniel. It perfectly exemplifies the moralistic reading of Old Testament Bible stories that many of us are familiar with. It casts Daniel and his band as the heroes of this story. Listen to these words. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. It's like a worship song to Daniel and his band. The chorus exhorts us, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And that's to miss the entire point of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is not the hero of Daniel 6. The main point of Daniel 6 is not that you would honor Daniel and dare to be a Daniel. The hero of Daniel 6 is the God of Daniel. And the main point of Daniel 6 is that you would worship the God of Daniel and fear him alone and not any man. And all of these reasons are heaped up at the end. Why should you worship this God? Because he is the true and living God, unlike all of the idols of wood and stone and gold and silver in Babylon or Media or Persia. Because he's the God whose kingdom is both indestructible and eternal, unlike all of these kings who have come and gone just in Daniel's brief lifetime. Because he is the God who rescues and delivers, which is, notice those are the same words, Darius tried to rescue and deliver Daniel. At the end, this proclamation, what did the God of Daniel do? He rescued and he delivered Daniel, which the king himself could not do. He works signs and wonders and he does it not only in heaven above, but on earth in history for the good of his people and for his global glory. Daniel 6 reveals that God to you so that you might trust him and worship him always and never fear anything. So when I say that the main point of Daniel 6 is not dare to be a Daniel, I don't mean that God has no intention to produce in you this same kind of courage and conviction. I believe God does. I believe that the effect of Daniel 6 on your life should produce fruit that looks a lot like the fruit in Daniel's life. We would not expect anything else if we are connected by faith to the same root. If you are, through faith, connected to the same God Daniel was connected to by faith, then there'd probably be fruit in your life that looks like the fruit in Daniel's life. There should be family resemblance when we share the same father, right? This courage will come out in the lives of the people of God. But the question is, how does God produce that kind of courage in people? Is it by pointing at Daniel and saying, dare to be that guy? I've used this illustration before. You show me videos of LeBron James and say, try to be like that. It is not going to do anything for my basketball skills. I don't possess the physical assets that LeBron James has. So how does the grace of God give ordinary, fearful Weak and unbelieving men and women, courage like that, backbones like that. He produces that in us through worship. So we worship Him. When you fear God, you don't fear man. When you worship God, you don't worship any other man. When you pray to God, you don't 
worry about any other threat. And there's a powerful illustration of this from Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I want to read you this excerpt. What happens in the souls of those who know their Savior? There's a slave owner named Simon Legree who orders Tom, a slave, to flog this female slave. And Tom refuses. Under threat to his own life, he refuses. Listen to the story. Legree looked stupefied and confounded, but at last burst forth, What? Ye blasted black beast, tell me you don't think it right to do what I tell ye. What have any of you cussed cattle to do with thinking what's right? I'll put a stop to it. Why, what do you think you are? Maybe you think you're a gentleman master, Tom, to be telling your master what's right and what ain't. So you pretend it's wrong to flog the gal? I think so, massa, said Tom. The poor critter's sick and feeble. Would be downright cruel, and it's what I never will do nor begin to. Massa, if you mean to kill me, kill me. But as to my raising my hand again, anyone here, I never shall. I'll die first. Tom spoke in a mild voice, but with a decision that could not be mistaken. Legree shook with anger. His greenish eyes glared fiercely and his very whiskers seemed to curl with passion. But like some ferocious beast that plays with its victim before he devours it, he kept back his strong impulse to proceed to immediate violence and broke out into bitter raillery. Well, here's a pious dog at last let down among us sinners, a saint, a gentleman no less, to talk to us sinners about our sins. Powerful holy critter he must be. Here, you rascal. You make believe to be so pious. Didn't you ever hear out of your Bible, servants, obey your masters? Ain't I your master? Didn't I pay down $1,200 cash for all there is inside your old cussed black shell? Ain't your mind now, body and soul? He said, giving Tom a violent kick with his heavy boot. Tell me. In the very depth of physical suffering, bowed by brutal oppression. This question shot a gleam of joy and triumph through Tom's soul. He suddenly stretched himself up and looking earnestly to heaven, while the tears and blood that flowed down his face mingled, he exclaimed, No, 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 my soul ain't yours, Massa. You haven't bought it. You can't buy it. It's been bought and paid for by one that is able to keep it. No matter, no matter, you can't harm me. I can't, said Legree with a sneer. We'll see, we'll see. Here, Sambo, Kimbo, give this dog such a breaking in as he won't get over this month. The two gigantic Negroes that now laid hold of Tom with fiendish exultation in their faces might have formed no unapt personification of powers of darkness. The poor woman screamed with apprehension and all rose as by a general impulse while they dragged Tom unresisting from the place. The thought that shot joy and triumph into Tom's soul was the thought that his soul was bought and paid for and kept by a Savior, living Savior who delivers 
keeps his promises. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a force more powerful than the most terrifying tyrants on earth. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus that purchases and secures your soul and washes away all of your guilt and brings you into right relationship with God to worship him, commune with him. Men and women who know and trust Jesus cannot be bought or manipulated or controlled or threatened or blackmailed or flattered or seduced into submission because they belong to Jesus, body and soul. And Jesus is the one to whom Daniel 6 points. I mean, you you probably caught it as we read all of the parallels between this chapter and the work of Jesus. Just like Daniel, Jesus was hated without cause. Just like Daniel, Jesus was blameless and innocent. Just like Daniel, he was falsely accused and sentenced to death. Just like Daniel, Jesus is laid in a pit, covered with a stone, with a seal set on it. Unlike Daniel, who is protected by an angel through the night, Jesus actually was abandoned by God and died. And it's because of that that Jesus emerges from the grave superior to Daniel. An angel from God came and shut the mouths of lions. Jesus shuts the mouth of the grave. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So no one who knows Jesus, trusts Jesus, worships Jesus, is a slave anymore. Not to sin, not to fear, not to any man on earth because Jesus shut the mouth of the grave. Daniel came out of the the den alone. Jesus comes out of the grave, leading forth all of God's new humanity to live and never die. Daniel, at the end, is promoted and prospers under Darius and then under Cyrus and then dies like all mortals. Jesus comes out of the grave and is exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he is sitting there right now, ruling and reigning over all of the kings and all of the kingdoms on earth, bringing all of his enemies into subjection under his feet. And if Daniel's deliverance from the den of lions was enough to inspire King Darius to proclaim that all people's languages and nations should worship the God of Daniel, then how much more does the resurrection of Jesus from the dead demand the white-hot worship of the nations? May he have it. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Our living hope who passed through the fangs of death, suffered what we deserve so that by your inexhaustible grace, we will never know, never ever know the least of the Father's holy wrath against sin. And may that reality steal our souls. May that truth shoot joy and triumph and confidence into our hearts. May we lift our eyes to heaven and know our souls have been bought, purchased, paid for, secured, kept forever by your love. 
Thank you, God, for all that you are for us in Jesus. May you have the worship and the allegiance of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.